Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Anybody else feel like that's just an amazing tune for us to start with this morning? Feeling plugged in a little bit? Ready to go? I just love what the guys in the sound booth are always doing every time. They're like, oh, no, 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 what's that? What's that noise? So anyway, that was our bumper to introduce us back into the series of Living Out Loud, which is where we find ourselves today. I'm Jonathan. And listen, I just want to I just want to acknowledge like there's hardly a seat in the house. Um, And yet I know the season like it's fall. I know you have projects at home. Like, I know there's other things for you to go be doing and getting ready because the snow's about to come. But I want to thank you for showing up and for being in the room. And uh, we are glad you're here, whether you're here in the room or whether you're tuning with us uh, online. In fact, um, I happen to know my son is watching. You guys remember my son, Seth, my oldest son? He's watching with a buddy from Liberty University. So welcome to the room, guys. And we're glad that you're here. Um, But uh, uh, we are going to be in week two of our series in the Psalms. That's where we go today, where we're talking about living out loud. And when it comes to that idea, that concept of living out loud, I can probably think about nothing more difficult for me as an individual to actually do. I mean, think about it with me for just a minute. Think about the checklist. I mean, I don't know how you think about this, but think about that checklist of all the things God has asked you to do. All the things that you think are his top priorities that maybe you are or you aren't doing. When it comes to God's top priority, one of the things he calls us to do, I think one of the things that stands out to me the most is one of the most difficult things God calls us to is to take the things he's given us, the things that we believe, the things that we know, and then actually live those things on the outside. To just live them out. To just live out, to flesh out the things that we really believe. The truth of the matter is, is that God has called each one of us to live a demonstrative life. A life that proclaims his glories and his excellencies by how we walk, by how we behave. And, and when it comes to this idea of living out loud, what I'm, what I'm not asking and what we're not talking about is, um, is getting another tattoo or another Jesus shirt. As cool as those things really are, my wife won't let me have the tattoo. Anyway, as cool as those things are, that's really not what we're talking about. What we're really talking about is what I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, tries to put words to as he writes to a church in Corinth, a church that was embedded in a culture, a church that was embedded in a culture that was filled with animosity, a church that was influenced by the culture around them, and Paul was trying to push back. He says, there's some things that need to characterize you. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul says to this church. The language that he used is meant for you and for me. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren, that's you and me, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. And then he says this, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is just, it's like this for Paul. He's saying, listen, I know, I know that there's a, there's a sense in which maybe you're being steadfast. Like, like you're being faithful to the things that I handed to you. You believe the right things and, and you're immovable. Like, like you know the right things and you're, and you're living in your heart the right direction. But there's a world in which you could have all of those things right and still fail. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Here's what I actually want you to do. I want you to take the things you believe and I want to take the morality that you espouse and I want you to always abound in it. Where? Out there. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, when we talk about morality in Christian circles, we're often, we're often talking about not living in excess, right? Like, live in moderation, Paul says. But the word here in Greek is actually the opposite. It's in excess. Like, if there's anything we should super abound in, it's the work of the Lord. Where's the Lord is the question. Where is he working? Where is he at work? It isn't just in us, it's through us, and it's to a lost world. In other words, Paul is saying, you're embedded in a culture, and I want you to live that out. I want you to live the truth out loud in the culture. Don't run and don't hide. This is hard. In fact, I think Jesus points our our minds in this direction when he pulls his disciples aside. In Matthew, he simply says, this is... This is the tension you guys are going to face. This is how it's really going to be. Listen to these words. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Here's what I want you to do. There's a gate, but it's narrow, and I want you to enter through it. And then he goes on, for the gate is wide. The gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to what? Destruction. The way is broad that leads to destruction, and that he, he caps it with this, and there are many who enter through it. In other words, Jesus is drawing his disciples to particular tension that they faced and that you and I also faced. And as if, if we are narrow gate kind of people, then we are living in a Broadway kind of world. And if we're living in a Broadway kind of world, then it's going to be really hard to live out loud. Because we should expect in a Broadway kind of society, in a culture that, that, that is going towards destruction, we should expect that there's going to be different heroes that emerge for those who are on the Broadway, that there's going to be a different history that emerges for those who are on the Broadway, and they are going to place their hope in a different location than you and I place our hope. And that's going to create a tension because, listen, he says, you don't get to escape it. I mean, you know, Jesus could have just made a doorway to heaven, literally. You just walk through the door and you're there. But he did it. He says, I want you to live in this tension and not let go of this tension. You are going to be, you are going to be identified publicly as narrow gate kind of people in a Broadway kind of world. And I want you to know that from the outside. If you follow me, that's the way it's going to feel. That's the tension you are going to experience. Now we get this and we understand that if we're going to try to live in a, in a Broadway kind of world as narrow gate kind of people, that if, if we aren't guarded, it could lead to corruption. It can have a corrosive effect on us, our minds, and our children. But there's an even more immediate danger. And that is when we try to live this way in a corrupt society that is filled with animosity, has their different heroes, their different history, and their different hope, that we might actually be intimidated into silence. 
So we're in the Psalms, and we're going to talk about how to live out loud in a cancel culture world. And so here's where we've been. Here's where we've been. Pastor Walker kicked us off on week one with praise. It's always a good time to praise. Not everything in the world goes the right direction, and there are other things that we can do, but we can always praise God. And when we praise God, something happens. When we live out loud in this respect, something takes place. His glory is on display. Today, we're going to talk a little about wisdom, so just put a pin in that. Um, And then, uh, here's the thing. Week three, um, next week, we're going to talk about instruction, but um, what happened was uh, Walker sneezed the other day and threw his back out and, uh, and so he's like, you know, I really, feel, I really feel like I'm more in tune to lament. So we're not going to do instruction. He's going to come back and he's going to do lament. And at this point, he's an expert in lament. Let me tell you, I had to live with him all week long. He knows all about lament. But here, in all seriousness, what I want you to know, you have to come back next week. Because lament is something that we have missed in our Christian culture in the West, but it is a critical piece in the Psalms. Most of the Psalms, I believe, are actually lament. That should inform us. Like, this is a significant part of who we are and living out loud. Then we're going to get into Thanksgiving. That's how we'll wrap this series up. And, uh, you know, there's nothing more out loud than just a grateful heart. Gratefulness has a powerful, powerful influence in our society and is one of the ways God wants us to live out loud. So we're going to talk about those things. But today, I want to introduce the idea of wisdom. And when we come to this idea of wisdom, we're really talking simplistically here about the art of skillful living. Like there's a way to live life. Like we can do it. And, uh, and when we think about wisdom as Christians or as Bible-believing people, um, probably our minds wander to places like Proverbs, right? Like that's the place where I would go to find wise words or wise sayings. And when it comes to Proverbs, we actually learn early on um, how wisdom is an out loud kind of an activity. Because the writer of Proverbs actually places in there two women, He personifies wisdom as a woman, and he personifies folly as a woman. You have Madam Folly, and you have Lady Wisdom. And when it comes to wisdom, there are two things that are prominent. The first thing about Lady Wisdom is that she is seen as on the public square, like she's out on the street corner, which is interesting, right? Because if you're going to personify wisdom, it seems hidden in our culture, but it's really not. Actually, it's accessible, and that's the point. That where is wisdom? Like, where could we find it? Well, we could find it in the public square, in the public arena, in the place of prominence. But there's another thing about Lady Wisdom. She's known for having a really loud voice. Like, she's a woman who shouts at the top of her lung, anybody, anybody who needs me can find me. She is available, and she is after you for your good. And the reason is, according to the writer in the Proverbs, is that life and death are really on the line. If we want to live skillfully, there's a way to do it. But here's the idea. Wisdom is readily accessible. And here's the deal. It is accessible whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God. It's actually one of the things God is using as a gateway to declare his glory. Whether you've ever read your Bible or ever attended a church, wisdom 
is available. If you go a little further into the scriptures to Ecclesiastes, you get another look, an investigation at wisdom, where Ecclesiastes, Solomon is really asking the question, what is good for us to do in a broken world? Like the reality is there's a good reason to lament because the world's broken. There's a lot of motion without promotion. It seems like we, we can never gain real traction, two steps forward, three steps back kind of thinking. And is there anything good, is there anything wise for us to do in a world where there's brokenness all around? And really Solomon wants to take us to that place and saying there is some good things that we can participate in. Actually, one of my favorite wise sayings from Ecclesiastes um, really just validates my lifestyle and my behavior, and that's why I think it's important. And it says, there's nothing better for a man than to tell himself after he looks at his labor that his work is good. Isn't that an amazing statement? And his reasoning is this, because only good comes from God. That's the bridge. That's the connection. And so every time I mow my lawn, guess what I do? I want to be a biblical Christian, so I sit down. I know there's other stuff to do, but I say, honey, can I have a cold drink of water, please? How about some iced tea? And she plays this little game with me. And we sit there, and we just look at the grass, and we just go, man, is there anything better than this? That's a gift from God. There's many other things that we can learn about wisdom, but when it comes to why wisdom, why has God placed wisdom in the world, here's what I want you to know. When it comes to wisdom, it acts like an anchor that secures God's presence in culture. That's what it's meant to do, and that's what it does. Whether you know God or you don't know God, the wise find God those who keep pursuing wisdom eventually bump in to the ways and plans of God. And so it's not unexpected when people are pursuing wisdom, when they get closer and closer and closer to the God who is the actual source of wisdom. So we want to dive in and we want to jump into this conversation. Um, but we want to do it from the Psalms, right? So, so I'm going to take you to Psalm 1. And the reason for that is important. Um, when the Psalms were compiled, they were compiled um, by a particular individual, Ezra, the scribe. And what we know about Ezra and Nehemiah, his compadre, is that, is that they were actually um, part of the process of bringing Israel back into the land. And what we know about that journey is that it was difficult. It was hard. They had to work against just about everything. I mean, adversity was literally everywhere. One of the things that they had to contend with is the fact that they had entirely lost, except for a few of the elite, basically they had lost the language, the Hebrew language. So they couldn't read the scriptures, so we hear stories emerging from that time. Um, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right? We hear stories of, of, the, of, of the leaders actually reading the law for the first time. And as they read the law for the first time, the people hear it, and they learn about a covenant God who loves them, who has a plan for their lives, and they just weep. And that's because, that's because they were illiterate. They just didn't know what they didn't know. But it was also a time, it was also a time when um, not only were they biblically illiterate, but they were in a land that was inhabited by other people. People who didn't obey or believe in their God. In fact, they thought worship of Yahweh was a shameful thing to do. But here's the thing, here's the thing that was probably the most damaging and the biggest hardship and the biggest danger to that remnant that returned 
to Israel. It's this. The wicked seem to hold all the cards. This is the context of Psalm 1. This is, this is what they were facing. They were facing a world when the wicked had all the money. The wicked seemed to, seemed to do whatever they wanted to, but the innocents, were the, they were the ones who actually were put in prison. It seemed to be a world in which if you were moving away from God, you could actually advance. But if you were moving toward God, you were going to get further and further behind. And you can imagine how important it was in this moment then for God to anchor himself in this fledgling, struggling Jewish community. So in fact, that's exactly what God does through Ezra God brings a song. Perhaps it's from the past written by David. We don't know. Perhaps it's written by Ezra himself, but he brings a song and implants it and drops it into this community, and it's meant to give them wisdom, and it's meant to encourage them and tell them what is possible in a world gone bad, in a world that was corrosive, in a world where the wicked seemed to have their way and hold all the cards. And when it comes to the Psalms, we know that they're songs, right? But, but the songs, written over a thousand years, we think, from Moses all the way to the times of Ezra, perhaps even beyond, these songs were compiled in the days of Ezra. And here's what's so interesting about that. We know Psalm 1 is not the first psalm written. And yet, we have it placed as the first song in psalms. Can you imagine why Ezra in his day and age, would have placed Psalm 1 first. The answer is, as you can imagine, to him, this was the most important psalm. It's a psalm of wisdom. And it communicates by its place of prominence that, that if you can understand this, like you can get the rest. Like if you could understand wisdom, it would lead you on a path. But it also tells us the result of living out loud in a cancel culture world. So we're going to go to Psalm chapter 1. And this psalm begins with a word. And it's a word that's meant to, to, uh, to bring hope. It's a word that's meant to encourage. In fact, the original hearers would have heard this word and it would have immediately drawn them in to the song that was being sung. And so here's the word. Psalm 1, verse 1, begins this way. How blessed, everybody say it with me, how blessed, how blessed is the man. Now the reason it says how blessed is the man is because at this day and age, there were no women on the face of the earth. So you could put woman in there too. Um, but the focus here really is how blessed. What is blessed? Well, this isn't the word, the normal word barak, which means to bless. But this is the word ashray, which really has the idea of congratulatory blessing. It's when somebody blesses you. It's when somebody actually calls you blessed. It's that idea that, um, that there's something about your life that is identifiable and fortunate. And as a result, everybody else in the room can see it. And they go, that person has got their life together. And the question is, how do you get there? How blessed is the man? And then we're going to find out, so how do you get there? 
But here's the word in our English translation that I want you to understand that's being talked about with ashray. It's the idea, it's the idea of admired, being admired. How do you reach a state where other people admire you? Well, the psalmist is going to tell us exactly how to get there. How blessed is the man, and then he goes into how the blessed man doesn't live. Listen to what he doesn't do. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, here's some things that he doesn't do. Now, there's some terms here that are important, right? I mean, there's a progression. There's, there's, there's standing, there's walking, there's sitting. Uh, but then there's also these other terms, right? There's the wicked, there's the sinners, and there's the scoffers. And there's a progression here. The wicked are those who oppose God and God's instruction. So blessed is a man who doesn't oppose God's instruction. And then there's the sinner. The sinner is the transgressor, the person who's guilty. They bear their guilt. They do the wrong thing. And perhaps they do it intentionally, knowing better. So here's the person who maybe knows the right thing to do, but who does not do it. And the one who is blessed or is admired is the one who does not participate in sin. And then there's this third level of scoffing. The scoffer is somebody who won't learn. Not can't learn, but won't learn. In other words, the scoffer is, in the Proverbs, the fool. The person who is always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth, as the Bible says. This is the person who sees what is wise and says it's evil. They call good bad and bad good. They mix everything up. Everything's twisted. And you can tell them the truth, but they just won't listen. Have you ever met anybody like that before? Probably they're about 16 years old. Anyway, <laughs> the blessed man, Ashra, does not participate in this pathway. This represents the broad way. This is the broad way. But we are narrow gate kind of people. So what does the, the Ashrei do? How do you get blessed? How do you get to that place where other people admire you? Well, he says how to do it in verse 2. His delight... Here's how you do it. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The law should be understood as the instruction of God. The person who isn't blessed, self-instructs, doesn't listen, goes their own way. But the person who is blessed, who's admirable, who's congratulated, this person is instructed by God himself. And he's always in the presence of this instruction. He meditates day and night. This idea of delight, though, fascinates me. Because as many of you know, I have four kids, and, um, and so one of my kids is in, in college, but the rest are in the home. I have a 10-year-old daughter. She's my youngest. Uh, but, uh, but I remember when each one sort of entered this phase, and they're all in it now, where uh, in the mornings, you know, I'll get up, I'll have my cup of coffee, and, uh, and then my kids will, will walk out of their bedrooms. And, and today, whenever they walk out of their bedrooms, like this thing happens where it looks like they were in a fight all night long. But I remember a time that was different. I remember when they were really young 
and they had their PJs on, and I'd be out there, and I'd be getting ready for work, and I'd be having my cup of coffee, and they would, they would like break down the doors because they woke up, and it's a new day, and they would, they would open the doors, and they would come rushing to me, and they would jump into my arms or jump into my lap, and they would want to know what the plans for the day are, and what are we going to do, Dad, and I love you, and it's so good to see you, Dad, and, and I get that maybe at Christmas time now. I have to give them gifts to get that same result, but listen, that's delight. That's what delight is. That's what the blessed man does. He delights in the instruction of God. Well, what is the result? The result is seen in verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted. He'll be rooted. His roots will go deep. This picture is the idea of storms of life. That there are these storms that come through. But for those who are admired, when the storm comes through, their roots go deep. Are you tracking their roots go deep. And there's something else that's true of them. They're planted by streams of water, and they yield fruit in season, and their leaf does not wither. And in whatever, and this is the point of the psalm, and whatever they do, they what? Prosper. That is the critical word in Psalm 1. And it is attached and defines blessed in verse 1. This is the idea that there is a way forward. Listen, as Ezra places this psalm in the place of prominence in the psalms, in the community, he was embedding a concept, an idea, in a cancel culture world. That it is possible to live in such a way that even in the place of wickedness, if you live with righteousness, if you live wisely in this world, you can actually prosper. Now you can imagine how encouraging that would have been for that remnant. Where for them, the struggle was real. I mean, again, think about it. They're thinking, you know, it, it almost serves me better if I don't pursue God. Like if I just hide everything I believe, then at least I can go to work and I don't have to be afraid. I mean, in this world, it's better to just sort of put your head down and keep moving. But living out loud, are you kidding me? That's a really great way to be unwise. And yet, the psalmist is saying, no, 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 listen, listen. There is a wisdom, and it's countercultural, but there's a wisdom you must understand. You have to live out loud. You have to live in this world. And if you do, you can prosper. I was talking to Jonathan in between services, and the illustration came to me of Noah. You know, there was a moment, I think, in Noah's mind where he said, God, you want me to do what? In front of everybody? In front of my kids even? You want me to recruit my kids to build this ark? Is it even going to float? What's going to happen? You know, God works this way. He calls Noah to a place of prominence to live out loud in front of a world that was, by the way, the most wicked and perverse generation that ever was. Here's what I absolutely fundamentally have to believe. I have to believe if I am a biblicist. If I really believe God, I have to believe. Listen, there is no room. I have to believe that it is possible to raise godly children in the most wicked and perverse generation that has ever existed. There's a way. There is a way to prosper. The way of wisdom will take us there. What happens to the wicked? What happens to them? Well, we find out what happens to them, and this is just as important for that remnant to hear. It says, the wicked are not so. 
Go back to that illustration of the storm. The storms of life sweep through. And when they sweep through, the righteous have deep roots and they prosper and they continue to yield fruit. But the wicked are not so. Enough said. When the storm comes, something else happens to the wicked. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. And he continues in verse 5, therefore, he says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now, this assembly is the courtroom assembly. Now, scholars have looked at this and wrestled with this passage for years, thinking, is this like heaven and hell type stuff? You know, is this about, you know, the final judgment? And the fact of the matter is that theology wasn't really known to the ancients. We don't really get there until the New Testament, but when it comes to the Old Testament, um, they did understand that the gods, or in this case, God, was actually present, judging, rendering verdicts in the courtroom of man. That there, God actually demonstrates his justice, his mercy, and his righteousness. So in a sense, be careful how you judge. Like somebody's watching that's bigger than you, oh judge. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, by the way, this doesn't look like a courtroom, but I want you to know that it is. It looks like a furnace. I want you to know it's a courtroom. And you might kill us, but I want you to know there is a God in heaven who has more power than you, and he judges righteously. That theology was embedded there, and it becomes prominent yet again. This is what Ezra and Nehemiah want the people to see. There is a way forward. It reminds me in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul who has this same thinking. The Apostle Paul reaches a moment in his life where he uh, comes before the courts. His life is on the line. And he actually says this. He says, everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood with me. Where was God? Oh, he was right there. He was invisible, but he was rendering a verdict. He was upholding me. The Lord stood with me. And by the way, when the Lord stands with you, you don't need anybody else to stand with you. And that's the way Paul felt in that moment. The wicked are not going to stand in the judgment. They won't receive a hearing, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And here's why, verse 6, for the Lord knows. He's intimately acquainted with the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked, the way of life of the wicked will perish. It isn't going to last. And God's in it from the very beginning. This is what this message is all about. This is his point. The way of the wicked will perish, but there is a way to live an admirable life in front of the wicked so that even the wicked in the place of judgment, in the assembly, will say, there is a God. There is a God in heaven. And we know his name. Why? Because God wants to make himself visible. And he does it through righteous means. When we stand firm in the courtroom of man, God is the one who is on display. And he determines that it will act that way. In fact, here's what I want you to take from this. And I think this is magnificent. When it comes to the Proverbs, those wise sayings in Proverbs, we get wisdom personified as a woman who is out on the street corner, who is announcing with a loud voice, any who will hear me, come and I will give you wisdom. But she's prominent. She's living out loud. 
She's available to anybody who will ask for her. But here in the Psalms, as the very first Psalm, the most prominent Psalm, I think something is actually being indicated for us to pay attention to. Can you think of anything more public than a courtroom? Then the assembly, as it's called here in this translation, a courtroom experience where you have the accusers and you have the lawyers and you have the world watching. And today there's a TV in the courtroom. Can you think of a better platform for the glory of God? And what God is saying in this moment to these people through this song, and he's saying to you and to me is it's in this moment, it's in this space that I will be visible. In fact, here's what I want you to grab from the psalm. Because I think it's important. It's this principle, the prosperous, the prosperous. Those who are blessed, ashray, ashray. Those who are blessed live public lives. Let me tell it to you like this. Where is wisdom found? Well, it's found in the courtroom. Where is wisdom found? Well, it's found in the public square. If you are going to be wise, where must you be found? In public. We were never meant to live private lives just believing the right things and behaving in the right ways behind closed doors without abounding in the work of the Lord, which, by the way, is out there. Now, this was something that captured their imagination and the imagination of an entire generation. They understood, and as a result, we have the record. They went to work and they built, they built Jerusalem, which someday Messiah would walk through, and you know that incredible story. But this, this was leverage. This psalm embedded itself in their culture, and they believed it, and amazing things took place. You can read about what happened over the course of the next 400 years as people begin to live out loud, unashamedly, about their God. But it's interesting because this last... Uh, spring, I had a chance to go to Israel with some of you, and I had a chance to go into the Holocaust Museum. So here we have the, the people of God, right, the Jews, and at some point, at some point in their history, things begin to shift for them. And it's a, it's a long story, but here's what stood out to me as a matter of prominence. I'd been to the first Holocaust Museum, which is very visual, but they had redone the Holocaust Museum, and this time it was very much, it was very much scripted. It was all about words that were used or thoughts. It was very much like walking through a gigantic newspaper leading up to the event that actually determined why the Holocaust happened in the first place. And as I was passing one such wall with my son, I remember this picture frame on the side of the wall, and in it had some, some documents about why they felt the Jews had been hated so much by the time of World War II. And it said on there that, that through the centuries, the Jews had lived at peace and along with their neighbors. They had conducted business. Their kids were uh, uh, with everybody else's kids, and they lived together as a community. They lived a public square, prominent kind of life. But as anti-Semitism began to grow in Europe, it said, the Jews, just prior to World War II, made a very strategic decision to progressively remove themselves from the public square. And as a result, as a result of removing themselves from public, they removed themselves from relationship. And as a result, hatred grew. It was easier to write them off and to marginalize them because they no longer lived an out loud kind of life. Listen, listen to me, listen. One of the hardest teachings of Jesus 
One of the hardest teachings of Jesus is actually an illustration that he gave to us through his disciples and what he called them to. He says, I'm going to do this for you. In fact, we think this might even be abusive, but this is what he actually says. We think this might be unwise, but this is what he actually calls his disciples to. He says, in a moment, he says, I am going to send you sheep. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. That's what I'm going to do. Like there's something there that we're supposed to get in on. There's actually something that could grow us. There's something that could happen. Is it possible that even in that environment, without the presence of Jesus, the disciples could thrive? Could a shrey happen in that moment? Jesus thinks it could. And so he sends them out. And the stories and the testimonies that result are profound. Now listen, here's why this is so important. When it comes to what Jesus has called you to and called me to, and called my family to, and your family to, and the church to, the church in this town, and in the next town, and all over our society, and in the world. When it comes to what Jesus calls us to, he couldn't be more clear. Listen to these words he gives to his disciples in Matthew 28. He says this, I want you to go, and as you're going, I want you to make disciples. And I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I want you to live public lives. I want you to move from here, and I want you to move out there. I want you to take what you know and not just be steadfast in it. I want you to live it out, and I want you to live out loud. I want you to live in the flesh. You know what it means that we're to baptize? That's a public declaration. You know what it means to observe all that Jesus commanded? What did Jesus do? That's what he commanded. How did he live? That's how we have to live. He's clear. He's saying how we're supposed to do it. You know what Jesus does? He comes in the flesh. He comes in the flesh. He says, I want you to go live in the flesh out there. That's the only way we know if we're obeying all that he observed and commanded. He didn't call us to build walls to protect ourselves from the world. He called us to build doorways to lead people to the Father. We do it through relationship. Sometimes it looks like sheep among wolves, but there is a way to live a blessed life there. I've got to believe it. And so we live it. I'm with you always to the end of the age is how he ends that. It's how he lands the plane. And I want you to make this connection. I believe that the Lord is with us, whether we're feeling like we're with him or on his frequency or not. I think the Lord is gracious and compassionate and full of goodness and kindness and mercy. And so he just is with us. But there's a special with us mentioned here in this verse when he says, I'm with you. When we are making disciples, I'm with you. When you are living out loud, I am with you. When you are drugged before the courts and slandered, I am with you. When you stand alone, I am with you. And by the way, he'll be with your kids too. Don't worry about it. In fact, that's how they're going to grow up. That's how they're going to strengthen their faith. That's the plan. I send you out a sheep among wolves. I am with you to the end of the age, which leads me to this question. Where should we expect to find God? Where should we expect to find God? Isn't that a great question? 
And I think in this moment, in this culture, that, that, that we're, we're investigating of, of Ezra and Nehemiah and this remnant, that, that there, was, there was an actual, logical, reasonable answer to that question that they would have identified and known. They would have had their own heroes and their own hope and their own history and their own story that would have indicated and, and drawn them to people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and people like Esther, and, and people like Daniel, who were able to live successfully and live blessed lives, Ashrah kind of lives, in the context context that was filled with adversity and the struggle was real. They would have been able to do that and they would have borrowed those stories and they would have said, son, you can do it. Daughter, you can do it. Honey, you can do it. You can work there. You can live there. You can play there. Don't you worry about it. That's where you will see God. In other words, they would have had stories about God in the fire, not just in the pew. That's where they would have found God, in the fire. They would have found God on the front line. That's where God is. He's on the front line. You want to go find God? Go to the front line. Stop hanging out in the tents. Get up where David is. Go get into the battle. That's where God is. Which leads me to this question. It's a question for you, but it's a question for me. Are you willing to step onto the pathway of the wise? It's a pathway. We're narrow gate kind of people in a broad way kind of world. But here's what I want you to know. Ah, just don't miss it. Here's what I want you to know. You may be narrow gate kind of people in a broad way kind of world, but there's a God who sees it all. He's judging. He's rendering his verdict. He didn't care about the politics in the room. He cares about you. Whatever it is that your heart is experiencing, whatever it is you are going through or your family is going through, your integrity matters. It matters to him. And he's rendering a verdict. What is the verdict that you want? You can have it with his power and his strength. And I, in this moment, Ezra is sitting down, he's writing and he's placing this psalm in prominence and I literally think he's saying, guys, out of all the things that you've forgotten, here's the one thing I want you to never forget. There's a way forward in a cancel culture world that proclaims the excellencies of God out loud. Don't be silenced by the critics. Move toward them in love and compassion. Move toward society, not away from it. Don't remove yourself. Don't be silenced. Live out loud. Church, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. That's what you've been called to. That's why you and I are here. Stand together and worship. God, we want to thank you for your word. Would you give us the wisdom and the power and the strength to not only identify the truth, but to live it out in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.